Hi everyone, welcome to Mind Matters. This is a new show. Now that we've gone into, we've entered the 21st century, is that it? So we are on YouTube now. So we decided to go with a new show, kind of uh, reflect the, the topics we've been covering in the last several months on the truth perspective. So this show will be kind of a continuation of those previous episodes, but with the added bonus of visuals for your eyeballs pleasure. Um, I am Harrison Cayley, and joining me today is Corey Schenk. Hello, everybody. And we've got Adam Daniels manning the computers. Hello. <laughs> so, um, I guess, you know, since we technically have a new show, I want to just kind of describe what Mind Matters is going to be. Um, for the most part, we're going to be covering topics like uh, psychology, spirituality, philosophy, um, and their kind of... Connection, connections to each other and other topics too. So we'll be talking about some history and religion and all kinds of stuff like we've been talking about on the truth perspective. Um, we'll just be going in that direction. And so for today's show, <clears throat> we want to kind of um, continue our discussion from the last few episodes of the truth perspective um, and maybe kind of tie a bunch of topics together that we've been talking about over the past several months and uh, kind of maybe as a both a summary and as an introduction for people who might be new to the show. So um, one of the books that we've talked a lot about, um, you know, over the months is Lobachevsky's Political Ponderology. And for those who don't know, it is a psychology book. I mean, Lobachevsky was a psychologist, so he's basically um, analyzing political systems and totalitarianism from the perspective of psychology, because he argues that you need to do that. Any other analysis, whether it's sociological, economic, or political, doesn't really get to the heart of the matter, and that you really need a psychological approach. <clears throat> this is also the same approach that Jordan Peterson takes. Um, you know, back in the 80s when he was writing Maps of Meaning, that's the conclusion he came to. Well, and even before that, he said that, uh, you know, that's why he stopped, um, you know, pursuing economics and politics, I believe, in, uh, in his like, uh, secondary, post-secondary education, and decided to focus on psychology because looking at something like uh, you know, the, the standard political analysis at the level of like, the economic, um, well, at the level of economics, doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. There's a lot missing because if economics is kind of has to do with uh, the things people value and how they value them, um, well, that doesn't answer the question of why they value them um, or what the values are. And to do that, you need to get to essentially the level of the individual and individual psychology. So that's what Ponderology does. That's what Lobachevsky does in the book. Um, that's the kind of his starting point is that you need to start from the perspective of the individual and from the latest kind of um, you know, psychological knowledge in order to be able to understand these kind of macro social um, things. And one of the things that he says in the book, um, and this will get into the topic for today's show, which ties into... Um, the last few that we did on James Carpenter's First Sight, is that, um, and we we talked about this on our last Ponderology show. This is the section where he's basically describing those found uh, like fundamental points of analysis, like uh, the importance of psychology. And so we described how he gives some basic kind of universals to human psychology and that need to be taken in, into account when we're doing this kind of level of analysis. And so we talked about things like association and memory and intelligence, basic intelligence, um, basic moral reasoning. And so there's just this little kind of like throwaway line um, in this section where he's talking about association. And he writes that, uh, well, I'll just read this sentence. 
In spite of, or maybe thanks to, the value judgments contributed to this question by psychologists and psychoanalysts, it appears that achieving a satisfactory synthetic understanding of the associative processes will not be possible unless and until we humbly decide to cross the boundaries of purely scientific comprehension. And then there's an, a similar quote um, in a later chapter where he says something similar. Um, he writes, We have the right and duty to critically judge our own behavior and the moral value of our motivations. So this is in the context, uh, well, in that context. This is conditioned by our conscience, a phenomenon as ubiquitous as it is incomprehensible within the boundaries of naturalistic thinking. So, um, just kind of taken out of context, like the, the, well, those statements, like in the context in which they're written, kind of are just kind of thrown in there. Like he doesn't expand on them at all. So when I first read those years ago, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder what he'd think about that. And it's only been after like the, you know, years since then reading other sources that I kind of maybe have an idea of what he had in mind. And that brings us back to James Carpenter's First Sight. So um, this is the book for, if you haven't seen it, um, I recommend you check it out. It's kind of, it's a tough read. It's, uh, it's pretty kind of technical and uh, <clears throat> dense, but then again, so is Ponderology. So uh, you'll have your work cut out for you either way. But one of the points he makes um, is pretty much the same, is that we don't really understand these things, like, at all. Like, we have some idea of what goes on in people's consciousness, in the, in the brain, in the mind, um, and these kinds of things are studied. I mean, psychologists are, uh, depending on what field they're in, they're pretty good at, um, like, let's say, at a very basic and, like, you know... Um, molecular level even, looking at the, the structures in the brain and what they seem to be correlated with in terms of behavior and, uh, and consciousness, like feelings and uh, little affect cognition behavior. So looking at these kind of correlates and being like, oh, so, you know, you look at a picture of this and this kind of is what the activity is like in your brain and stuff like that. But then you get like clinical psychologists who are more interested in like where you're at, what your, what your feelings are, what your motivations are what the kind of um, like unconscious influences are that are kind of driving your behaviors. But even with all of this, uh, even in like, the, you know, with a hundred plus years of psychology, we, can't, we still can't explain um, like adequately what thought is, why thought happens, you know, why, why experience happens, why we have a sense of ourselves in the world, why we experience anything. And that is kind of still a big mystery. So in the, in the end of the uh, last chapter of Carpenter's book, he kind of comments on the, 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 um, like the, the, real, the expansion of our scientific knowledge, like in relation to electromagnetism, for instance, and how um, really we had no what we could call scientific understanding of electromagnetism for you know, thousands of years. And then in a short period in like the 1800s, um, all these new discoveries were made, and you had like people like Maxwell and Maxwell's equations, and and uh, coming to this understanding of what electromagnetism is, and then as as we were able to um, get more insight into the to the molecular nature, uh, the molecular level of things, and to actually look at what's going on at the atomic level of things, we realized that oh, electromagnetism is huge. You know, it has a, a a role in everything, like to the very bottom of what we consider matter, and that those scientific discoveries and breakthroughs have le have led to kind of technological breakthroughs to to the point now where you know we all use electronic devices 
utilizing these, you know, utilizing this, um, these new understandings that we've gotten over the past couple hundred years. And so he writes after that, he says, understanding the mind itself is the next great task of science. And, uh, yeah, I, well, it, it should be, I think. And he, but he follows that up with, by saying, uh, the findings of parapsychology are crucial to the development of an adequate understanding. <clears throat> so that's where this book kind of comes into the picture is that he's basically arguing that this, you know, this, uh, this science that is often considered uh, a pseudoscience among mainstream um, scientists, he's saying that's actually, it's actually crucial. And um, I think anyone that reads this book, well, this probably isn't the best book as an introduction to parapsychology. He kind of takes, uh, um, takes for granted that anyone reading it probably has some understanding of the field and what the kind of research has been over the past 100, 150 years that, uh, to go into it. Um, but, uh, so there's probably better books, maybe like Richard Broughton's um, book on parapsychology. I can't remember the exact name on it. Or, you know, some of Dean Radin's books that are more recent. But um, the, what he's basically saying is that, and what he shows in this book is that the kind of phenomena associated or, you know, called psi or, or studied in parapsychology have, like, remarkable similarities to known and accepted, um, you know, uh, uh, phenomena of the, like, pre-conscious, unconscious mind that are accepted by the wider scientific community already. Like, they're not controversial. Oh, I think that's what Broughton's book was called, Parapsychology, the Controversial Science. I believe that was it. Uh, if you want to check it out, it's a good one. Even though it's a bit old, it's a bit out of date, it's still a great introduction, uh, you know, for its time at least. So, as we described in, like, the previous shows, there, the, the way that, like, what are commonly called telepathy and, like, PK seem to work is very similarly to the way other studied unconscious phenomena work, like we gave the example of subliminals, like primes, when um, a, a visual, for instance, a visual stimulus will be flashed in front of a, like a, the test subject's, um, you know, eyes uh, so fast that they cannot consciously perceive it. So they won't even have an awareness, it, it can be so fast that they don't even have an awareness of like the flash of light. It's like they can't see it at all. But that that image will affect them in certain ways. It'll affect their emotions, like their physiology, um, not even on a conscious level either. Like the, they might get a, a galvanic skin response, like they might get nervous, but they don't realize they're nervous. It hasn't been brought up to the level of consciousness yet. And it'll affect their behaviors too. They might be more inclined to um, you know, answer a question one way as opposed to another. Because this, uh, this image had some kind of emotional relevance, like it might be an emotionally charged image, for instance. It might be like a, you know, a violent image or an erotic image. So their body and their subconscious is reacting to that image as if they've um, you know, seen it, but they have no awareness of having seen it. So because this is just the way subliminals work, and it's, this, so this has been, these sorts of things have been studied for decades and are widely accepted as you know, being true phenomena. But uh, so the point he makes is that when you look at the at the the kind of the research along similar lines that's done in the realm of parapsychology, you see the same effects, the same kinds of things happening. So that seems kind of coincidental. So that leads to his theory, of course, that this uh, he's got a, a theory of the construction of consciousness and the role that um, these psi processes play in the construction of consciousness. And um, so that's why he's saying that we that any new understanding of the mind will need to take this stuff into account because if he's right about 
about Psy and what he thinks about Psy, then Psy is like a fundamental aspect of consciousness. It, it might be the fundamental aspect of consciousness. And what we consider our awareness and our consciousness is just something, it's built on top of that. <clears throat> and that we can't understand that secondary like consciousness without understanding what it's built on top of, what the most basic fundamentals of consciousness are. So um, one of the things I want to say before we go any further is that, um, well, one of the reasons why this should be like the next big question, the, great, the next great task of science, <clears throat> is that a lot of the existing approaches are really kind of a... Um, false starts, or they're like kind of roads to nowhere. They're dead ends, and these would be the the kind of popular and um, well, I guess you could call them popular. The popular approaches to the mind and the popular beliefs about what the mind is and what consciousness is. But when I say popular, maybe that's not the best word because it's not what ac what real people actually believe. Because I mean, most people don't think about these kinds of things, or d don't really have an opinion of them, or don't really read like the you know, the, the scientific community's consensus on these sorts of things. Um, most people just don't do that. And it's kind of, they're probably better off for not doing so because th there's just so much garbage. And a, lot, a large part of that garbage is because of the materialistic framework. So basically, if you ask a lot of like professionals and people who are looking into this, um, especially if they're um, mainstream scientists, um, you know, within the scientific community, they'll basically argue that consciousness doesn't actually exist. It's, it, that it's an illusion. Um, so this is where you get guys like, um, you know, Daniel Dennett and even, uh, um, like some of the new atheists and guys like that. Um, they basically argue that consciousness isn't really consciousness. Experience isn't really what you experience. It, it's, a, it's an illusion. Um, it is a secondary effect of, like, physical processes. They don't explain exactly how that can happen, um, because that's impossible. But they think that because everything is material, because everything is physical, um, basically like, uh, you know, particles and energy, and these, uh, and that there's nothing, that those are the only forces operating in the universe, that consciousness must be reducible to those things. So that if you had a complete understanding of everything, you would be able to account for the phenomena of consciousness in terms of, you know, the, the activity of atoms and subatomic particles, which... Um, which again is nonsense because that's impossible. I'll you know kind of describe why. Um, well, maybe. Well, and I think that the the main reason, and I'll I'll try to um, get into this a bit, is because something like mind, something like experience or consciousness, can't be explained in in, in any terms other than itself. For example, you can't explain. Um, you can't account for what it is like to smell something um, with a mathematical equation. Because a mathematical equation is a mathematical equation. Um, there might be a relationship, you know. You might be able to, um, you know, measure the, the number of, you know, gaseous atoms that are, and, you know, and the things that are entering into your nostrils and the way, and the, the ratios and the, the way that they pass the, pass the, the air body membrane and, um, and you know, you might be able to describe the, these pathways mathematically and then, then the brain responses and things like that, but that'll have nothing to do with what it actually is like to smell something. Um, same thing with seeing something or any kind of experience. You can't reduce an experience to something that isn't an experience, and a mathematical equation is not an experience, and atoms aren't experiences. What, what all these things are are, are scientific and mathematical abstractions. 
And that is what um, Alfred, North, Alfred North Whitehead and David Ray Griffin and uh, several others who we've talked about, well, uh, R.G. Collingwood, they call um, the, <clears throat> the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, or it's, it's just the fallacy of abstraction. To abstract something, to describe it in, in terms of an abstraction, and then to say that that abstraction is the reality. When really all you've, all you've done is described a certain thing in a certain like reductive way, which may be true, you know, to some degree, but it doesn't capture the whole essence of the thing, and it can't be reduced to that abstraction. And that's pretty much where most um, mainstream approaches in philosophy and psychology are stuck, because they take the abstraction as a reality, and that by doing so, they take away the thing that actually makes consciousness consciousness. So there are some people, of course, that understand this because it's a pretty basic. Um, you know, if you're not trapped within the like a, a scientific ideology about this, with a which is a philosophical worldview about the nature of the world and uh, and uh, and how we know things and all that kind of stuff, if if you're not trapped in that, then it just it's just common sense. So there are philosophers like uh, Thomas Nagel who wrote his book uh, Mind and Cosmos in uh, 2012, I believe, and you know you read that and it's just like, well, you know that makes sense. But people have been saying this for you know decades and well hundreds of years. Um, you know, you can go back to to Whitehead, who was writing in like the twenties, saying the same thing, and uh, you've got David Ray Griffin, who's kind of a, a good summarizer of uh, White, Whitehead's approach, and uh, in his book Unsnarling the World Knot, where he deals with the problem of consciousness, and um, Nagel, who's more recent, I mean, pretty much just lays it out. And he, I think he has um, two or three main points. Like he talks about experience just the the very basic level of experiencing yourself as something that someone something that experiences um and and that 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 is the lowest level that you can get in terms of experience it's like you can't explain an experience in terms of anything other than an experience there may be other things associated with but you just can't do that otherwise you can't you can't describe experience in terms of something physical because something physical by definition doesn't have experience it is a, a a scientific abstraction, but also the existence of reason, for instance. Like if if reason is if reason exists, if there are logical um, norms that are true, um, if th things work in a certain way like that, um, well, how do you reduce like a, a logical um, principle principle in terms of you know again down to like atoms and mathematics? Can't really do it. Well, you can describe logic in like in a in a mathematical way, like symbolic logic. But um, but again, it's a it's an abstraction that leaves out the 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 essence of what it, you know what it is like to be a reasoning um, being, and uh, that actually goes back to um, a, a paper I think that uh, Thomas Nagel is famous for. I can't remember what the animal was, but he basically wrote it as like, what is it like to be a like a aardvark or something, you know, some kind of animal, because um, it's it's like something, right? What is it like to be a human? Well. Um, everyone listening to this knows because they're they have some degree of consciousness, they have some degree of awareness. You know, the, this audio file is being played on some device and is going into their ears, and they're hearing it and they're understanding it. That is a part of what it is to be human and to to experience. So um, that is one of the reasons why um, we called our show "Mind Matters" is because this is like a it's a it's a huge uh, it's a huge thing. It's a huge problem, and it and um, like Carpenter says, and like you know, all these people say, well, this is what I don't really like about this. Uh, <clears throat> um, well, I'll get into it. So, 
people like Carpenter and uh, and maybe even um, um, Jordan Peterson, like they'll all say, "Oh, we don't understand consciousness. We don't understand like we don't understand anything about it." And that's kind of true. But at the same time, there there's been there have been a lot of people who have looked at this and actually come come to some pretty interesting conclusions about it um, that just don't get any kind of like mainstream coverage. So I'm not even sure if I agree with that, that we don't have any idea what consciousness is. No, sh- certainly it's, it is a big mystery, because, but maybe it's just a, maybe it's a partly a big mystery because we're trying to answer the, the question in terms that aren't appropriate. So it's like, we don't have any idea how consciousness is like comes about because of physical forces and processes. It's like, well, maybe it doesn't like maybe we're looking at the question from the wrong angle that's uh i think that might be you know what someone like david ray griffin would say it's like well you know you you can't approach the problem like that um of course you're not going to have any kind of like scientific understanding of consciousness if by scientific understanding you're talking about um you know a a study of the of the natural world in terms of physical objects you know you won't be able to do it so um so that's why Coming back to the main point, that's why we call the show Mind Matters, is because mind is very important for the main reason is because we all have minds and the only way we know anything and show any interest in anything and do anything is because of our minds. So that should be the main thing that, uh, well, that should be the thing that we want to understand the most if we want to know about reality. Because um, if we're studying external reality, like if we're studying physical things and trying to, to describe them and understand how they work, like which is what scientists do of all types, well, the only way they are able to study is because they have a mind, because they have an experience, because they have a, an awareness that they are experiencing something and then the ability to think about those things and to, to theorize and to make connections. And the, the ways in which those connections are made are because of the nature of mind. So really we should be, if we want to understand science like itself, and if we want to understand ourselves, like we really have to understand our minds. And um, that's why uh, we'll be looking some more at uh, James Carpenter's book. Do you have anything to say about that, Corey? Uh, yeah, well, you, the, you touched on a number of really interesting subjects. And I, I was thinking, I was struck most specifically by the idea of this reductionist fallacy and how it, you know, it kind of, it blinds people to, how we can possibly explain consciousness and experience. And I was thinking of it in terms of how radically successful it was, or it has been in the physical sciences, just by just eradicating this whole idea of, you know, God in the gaps, that everything that we don't understand we can attribute to God, by eradicating that idea systematically and by, you know, by proving, uh, you know, I guess you could say they, you know, prove in some sense, that things are physical. They have physical cause and effect, and you can reduce them down to that, and that's a good way of explaining the universe. However, now we're at this point where we're stuck in this kind of like this materialism of the gaps when we turn our attention to more spiritual uh, conceptions. You you can't use materialism to explain conscious experience and to explain why people uh, have ethical systems, value systems, religious systems. You can't use it to explain that specifically. There's a bunch of other things that are going on, the cause and effect that are incorporated in that, but there's also another dimension. And I think there's a reason why, uh, you know, Carpenter, Lobachevsky, and Peterson were all clinical psychologists, because they all were trained in the scientific method, 
but they had an, a moral and ethical imperative mm-hmm. to treat the people, the actual mm-hmm. people that they're dealing with. And you, they can't, you can't do that by treating them as though they are just physical, you know, machines. In the in the you know the analyst's office, you you are privy to so much, so many more dimensions of human experience that you know that can't be explained by mechanical theories. And so, just through the sheer pragmatism of like the scientific method, you're forced to confront these ideas and yeah. to come up with. Uh, and to use language, to create objective language, if there isn't any already, in order to understand these processes. And as Carpenter points out, in, by incorporating the empirical sciences of the parapsychology, you get an, a, a view of the mind that requires a radical rethink of what we, how we view causation and in a whole number of different things, you know, we, we think of cause and effect as being, you know, they have to be spatio-temporally connected. And mm-hmm. Cause has to come right before effect. But as he shows in a number of studies, uh, especially I think it was implicit learning, uh, some implicit learning studies that gave these participants a series of numbers and a computer would randomly, in the future, would randomly pick a, uh, a sort of uh, uh, what would you call sequence it? A sequence, or... a certain sequence. And they had no idea what the sequence would be. But they found that a lot of these people would, uh, you know, they, there was no sequence at first, and they were told to, fight, to, to spot the sequence. And they, they discovered that a lot of people would spot the sequence that was coming, mm-hmm. not in the series that they were given, but in the series that they would be given. Mm-hmm. And so they, it was, you know, conjectured or, you know, speculated that they were uh, pre-experiencing mm-hmm. this sequence, that some part of them was in touch with that, and that was how they were viewing it was... It was shaping and programming their their way of viewing the the actual information that they were receiving. Mm-hmm. So you have this this worldview that opens up where there's a mind that is, in some way, it's connected. It's uh, it's connected physically. It incorporates this physical body that can be explained in many ways by nuts and bolts types phenomena, even if it's not uh, by any means understandable to humanity. It's mm-hmm. you know it's physical. But there's this other element, this dimension that is that transcends time and space, and yet at the same time, it's it's just as much a part of us as much as you know our conscious personality. It is shaped by our you know our 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 personality. If we are extremely open or extroverted or easily anxious, that that part of us is also in tune with that, and where it's our experience of that dimension is shaped by that by our personality. Mm-hmm. So it, I think, the what makes his work, Carpenter's work, so relevant is the idea is the fact that it it integrates our knowledge of psychology with this idea of a mind that is so much more uh, less physical. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it broadens our view of human nature. It incorporates these uh, an understanding of otherwise just random anomalous experiences that almost I'm sure just about everybody. I'm sure all of our listeners have had experiences that would be considered anomalous. You know, whether it was you know psychokinetic or ESP, strange predictive dreams, and things that you know um, uh, don't fit into the mechanical nuts and bolts view of reality, but we don't have, there wasn't, there's not really a theory 
that actually pays respect and honors those in terms of explaining why they happen, mm-hmm. not just that they happen or what it's you know what it looks like when it, but why why it happens and how it's connected to our our practical scientific understanding of the unconscious and and how um, how to how we should orient towards it. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think that's a big part, too. A lot of people don't have any idea how to orient towards the more anomalous experiences of the mind. They can be frightening. Um, they can, people can get lost in them, dissociated into them. They can, you know, it's this whole realm of the mind is so, uh, it's so much of a jungle. There's so much out there that requires a, like real good empirical testing and scientific discovery that, like you said, Harrison, we don't have the our physical sciences are not equipped to deal with it. We have to, we have to allow for uh, the possibility that we need to radically rethink uh, how, how the mind really works. And like the title of the book, First Sight, uh, Carpenter says, you know, that it's, it's not second sight. You don't get this ESP and, you know, as an ability, as, you know, something that you develop, but rather this is just a fundamental fact of the mind in and of itself is that it doesn't, it's not, it's not just in the body. Mm-hmm. It's, and you know, I'm, people have heard that before and I think we all intuitively understand that, but that has major implications for what it means to, to discuss the mind and how, it's connected to our body. Mm-hmm. Well, a, a few things on what some of the things you said there. Um, like you talked about how um, probably everyone listening has had an experience of that sort. You also uh, mentioned how experiences like this can be frightening for various reasons. Um, I'd add to that that for, for, a lot, for a lot of people, I think, an experience like this might be frightening to a certain degree and maybe even frightening on a, an unconscious level to the degree that they'll have an experience like this, but won't even notice it. Um, because I think probably everyone has had this type of experience, but probably not everyone has paid any attention to it. Um, because often these kinds of things can just be written off as coincidences. I mean, some yeah, coincidences do happen. So, um, so when something that is truly anomalous, let's call it that, does happen... If it isn't actually a coincidence, if it is something anomalous, it's easy to get written off as a coincidence because who's going to tell, right? Usually you can't prove these sorts of things. So even for a lot of people that have a genuine experience of this sort, um, they might not pay any attention to it. And Carpenter even argues that this probably happens all the time. So we, all the time. We probably have experiences like this regularly of um, a um, what he might call like a, an a, elusive or um, like image image or you know, some kind of imagery that comes to mind or some kind of feeling that is prompted by a non-sensory prehension as he calls it um, but that because we have no way of verifying it it just kind of we forget about it it's just we go on to the next thing and it doesn't it doesn't bother us anymore because because we haven't had the the conscious experience to um, confirm that kind of uh, that question that is posed by the unconscious mind to us. So these these things are probably happening way more often than we actually realize. And it can be just, you know, you get a weird feeling at some point. You have no idea why. Well, there might be a reason for that. You know, something comes to mind for some reason. You don't know why. Um, you do something. Like you, your your body behaves in a certain way. You, you make a movement of a certain sort and you don't know why. Well, these things all can be influenced by um, pre-conscious and unconscious processes. And not necessarily psi either because um, there are all kinds of... Um, what you might call more more normal, even though that 
uh, isn't technically true, um, what we might consider more normal uh, phenomena. And these are the kinds of things that you know regular psychologists usually study, like these, like subliminals. So there are a couple examples, um, like um, there's one that is called um, perception without awareness. And this is actual, like, so there's actually something physically in your environment that's going on that you see, but you, you're not aware of having seen it. So um, I think an example like this might, well, it's at least somewhat analogous to the famous experiment where you're watching the video of the students passing a ball back and forth, right? And you have to count how many times they pass the ball back and forth. And while you're counting, there's a, a, you know, a student in a gorilla suit that walks through. And like the vast majority of people doing this experiment never see the gorilla. It's right there in the middle of the screen. It's totally obvious, but because they're paying attention to something else, they don't see the gorilla. Something similar like that happens all the time. So you'll be paying attention to something, something else will happen, and you won't be consciously aware of having seen it at all. If you're asked about it, you'll have no idea about it. But that perception, um, or that perception actually happened on an unconscious level. So some part of you did see it and did register it. And that will be reflected in later behavior, for instance. Um, and it, so it does act like a prime, but it's not something that you that like flashes so fast that you don't see it. It's just something that you didn't notice consciously, but that happened, that you were somewhere, somehow aware of. So when he gives the example, we talked about this a few weeks ago, how he's kind of hard of hearing. So at parties, this happens often where he'll, he'll have a great idea and he'll, he'll say to everyone, oh, I had this great idea, and he'll talk about it, and they kind of roll their eyes because someone else had just said that like several minutes before, and he hadn't heard it. But some part of him had heard it, right? And so, and so in his own experience, in his mind, he experienced that as if this idea just came out of nowhere. He had no awareness of having actually heard it. And that happens at parties too. Like you're paying attention to someone and some, someone might say something behind you and you have no, no conscious awareness of having heard it. But then the same thing might happen. You say, oh, you know, were you thinking about, or, or you know, I just was reminded about this. And you bring up something in the conversation and the person behind you was just talking about that. You didn't realize it though. Um, so there are all kinds of these things that will affect our behaviors and our thinking and our emotions that we're not consciously aware of. This happens below the level of conscious awareness. <clears throat> so I, want, I just wanted to bring that up. <clears throat> and also, um, just the very idea that, um, for instance, that something like this might be, like an experience like this might be frightening. And I think that's usually true, like, uh, especially with, like, uh, with psychokinesis. Like when, you know, if you're, um, you know, you're, you're, you're practicing table tipping or whatever. And, you know, if you levitate a table or something, it's for a lot of people that would be frightening because it seems spooky. You know, it seems like something that shouldn't be happening. It's, it's not normal. You know, that's not the way that the, that the physical world is supposed to behave. So, um, so there's, you know, a lot of negative reactions to something like that. But the, one of the main points of his theory is that it is things like that, like emotions like that, which he, he would call intentions or uh, motivations or aims that determine, um, well, that construct our consciousness. Our consciousness is constructed out of intentions and aims. So in the case of like someone afraid of Psy, they would be unconsciously and perhaps even consciously motivated to, um, to reject Psy. And you see this all the time in every sphere of life where people have, uh, people are motivated to either believe something or not believe something. Um, you can see that in politics all the time. It's a very easy, you know, a very easy uh, pool, like pool of you know, subjects to study where um, people will not believe something because they don't want to believe it. 
and everyone's like that um, to one degree or another. And so what First Sight is basically about and, and saying is that at a very deep level, we have beliefs about things and intentions. Like we want to do certain things and we want not to do other things. And that those unconscious intentions will then influence the information that gets brought to consciousness. And that'll happen, um, that'll happen at all levels, and that is, that is basically happening in everything that we experience. Everything we experience is, become at, is because at some level um, there is a judgment made um, to bring that thing to awareness or not. And the or not is very important too. There's a decision made in, in many cases not to bring that thing to uh, awareness, to consciousness. And that's uh, that has a large degree, that has a large, uh, a lot to do with what we might call like uh, mental illness of various degrees, or even just um, like the mental illness of everyday life in like just the things that we do wrong, the mistakes that we make, the bad choices that we make, um, you know, the interpersonal problems that we get into because of our own um, like egotism and selfishness. It's because we're 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 actively blocking out other things of importance and um, not being aware of certain things and ignoring certain things um, like on a basic level, on a fundamental level that we might not even be consciously aware of. Um, so just to summarize some more of, um, of Carpenter's kind of approach, he basically, he's talking about the importance of these pre-conscious feelings and meanings. That's the word we haven't brought up yet. That, uh, that serve to orient our attention and prepare us for understanding. So this is what he's saying first sight is about, is that the first thing that happens in that first instant of consciousness is a scanning of like all the potential meanings, all the, all, all the things that are potentially meaningful, and to select those things that are meaningful in relation to our intentions at the moment. And that once those things are selected, that is basically preparing our mind to direct its attention towards those important things or away from those important things. And that in itself is a preparation to understand those things. So when I'm looking at something, there's an unconscious process preparing me to understand what I'm looking at. And this will involve, um, um, to a large degree, memories of those things. So when you look at any object, it's because you've experienced it before, because you have a memory of what that thing is, if, or a person. You know, you have a memory of the person that you're interacting with. That's how you know they are who they are. And uh, you might recognize their face, or, or uh, an endless number of things about that person, like the facial expressions, the, the shape of their face, the, the body movements that they make, the tone of their voice. All of these things go together to create um, like this this uh, synthesis of all these little bits of information to form like, you know, in, in my immediate experience right now, to form like the, the image in my mind of Corey. So there is all kinds of information that is preparing my consciousness to understand the, the objects of my experience, in this case, Corey. And that um, the, the reason that we experience, um, the reason that we don't seem to experience psi or these kind of anomalous, uh, these anomalous things, these anomalous processes, um, more often, you know, they seem to be anomalous because they seem to happen rarely, is because for the most part, what is happening is that the, the pre-conscious processes are preparing us for our conscious experience of what we, you know, are experiencing in, a, in our physical reality. So I'm being like, unconsciously prepared to understand, you know, this person sitting in front of me. And 
the sensory information is the most immediate, um, reliable, and like available for validation. So it's like the my consciousness is like is looking for potential meanings. It's finding potential meanings and then it's, it's like suggesting them um, to my more conscious processes. And then um, so at at this level, there's only like potential. It's like oh, well, it could be this, could be this. But when I actually physically like through this body like have now um, a, a stream of um, sensory information. It's like that information then confirms some of those meanings and says, okay, yes, this is important. This is the most important thing right now. Um, it's important to be able to see and recognize and understand your environment so that you can then operate in that environment. Because on a very basic level, you, for instance, don't want to die. Um, you, don't, you, you want to be in this reality, to survive in this reality in order to do other things in addition to just surviving. So that's one of the reasons why we are so tied to our conscious experience, our, our sensations, is because that is the, the most immediately available source of information for us. And it's the most immediately relevant. And, and when anomalies happen, it's because it's, the, it's one of those um, anomalous or you know, rare, rare times where the important information isn't available to your conscious awareness. It's like something happens that's very important to you uh, for some reason, that can't be confirmed with your senses. And in that case, it, without a, a, an experience, uh, a further experience to confirm that information, it, it's, it's left hanging, right? It's left as only a potential. So if you have like a psi experiment where you're testing, you know, um, like it might be like, a, I think what they call a forced choice test where you basically have like four cards and you have to guess the image on each of those four cards. So you, you make a guess. It's like, okay, I think that one's, it might be numbers. So it's like, I think it's six, four, two, eight. Well, if you never get shown what the cards are, if the study stops right there, you'll never have a confirmation of whether you were right or not, whether you had accurate information, non-sensory information or not. Um, it'll, it's just a guess. So it's only when you, you actually flip the cards over that it's like, oh, wow, you got those right, and you only had uh, you know, a whatever percent chance of getting it right, and you got all of them right. Like That's, that's a significant hit. Of course, it's never that simple. They do multiple trials and uh, multiple subjects, et cetera, so they're, you know, they have a lot more stuff to work with statistically. But, um, but the point is simply that you need that confirmation, and it's that sensory confirmation, and most of the time you don't have that available. That's why all of these hunches and vague feelings and thoughts and images and even dreams, why they're not necessarily recognized as paranormal or you know parapsychological or anomalous or psi, because you have no way of knowing for the most part, no way of confirming. And those times that they are confirmed is when you look back and you say, oh, wow, that was a, that was a really interesting, you know, experience I just had there, but it's because you've had the actual confirmation from your senses. So that's the, that's what he would argue, what he would argue is the reason for why, um, our conscious experience through our, through our senses is so dominant in our consciousness because it is the most available, reliable, um, and, uh, validatable, uh, confirmable information, you know, for us to, to work with. And, um, yeah, so maybe, I th unless you had something to say to that, Corey, um, let's go to uh, a clip. This is um, from Jordan Peterson's recent um, Q&A, March, I believe. And uh, let's just play the clip, and then we'll discuss it afterwards. The aims that you have in your life, the ethical aims, and those are the aims that direct your actions, 
also direct your perceptions that this is true at a neurophysiological level and that much of the way that the world manifests itself to you is a consequence of the structure of your ethics. So it's your ethical structure that's instantiated neurophysiologically that serves as an intermediary between the world of phenomena, let's say, um, objective phenomena, and your perception of that. And you see the world through an ethical lens. And one of the things that that suggests, and I outlined this in rule six, is that if the world looks to you like a dismal and terrible place, um, and you're nihilistic and depressed and hopeless and all of that, I mean, there can be physiological reasons for that. You might be ill, but if it's a psychological issue, it's certainly possible that at least part of the reason that everything appears to you in that light is because your ethical structure is not well formulated. It's incoherent. It's nihilistic. It isn't predicated on the idea, for example, that people have um, some, some spark of divine virtue and that everyone is valuable in that right and that we all have the possibility to make a genuine contribution to the world or at least to stop it from degenerating any more than it has to into a kind of hell. So that's, uh, that's something that he says pretty often. Like The, the ideas in there are, are ideas that Peterson talks about regularly. And I just wanted to kind of comment on them and how they relate to what we're talking about and potentially even to like Carpenter's first sight theory. So he starts out by talking about like the aims that you have, the ethical aims. And he defines the ethical aims you have as the, the aims that direct your actions. And uh, also says that that they direct your perceptions too at a, not at a neurophysiological level. So this is essentially what First Sight is saying. Instead of using the the word aims, uh, Carpenter is using the word intentions. That un, that intentions are what direct your actions and even direct your perceptions at a neurophysiological level. So the way to kind of integrate this into like First Sight would be. That um, first of all, when we're talking about ethics, like ethics is, uh, well, I think, I don't know, we'll see how this works. But I think that, uh, so ethics are a certain types, uh, ethical aims are a certain type of aims, right? They, they are determining the, the, the goal, uh, the aim of an ethical aim is to make the best choice possible, the, 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 yeah, the best choice in pursuit of, let's say, the good, you know, the philosophical good. Um, the best one possible um, to direct your actions, the choices you make, the, the, the actions you make in your everyday life, just every choice that you make, um, it can be either for um, the good, for just staying the same neutrality, or it can be a bad decision that leads to harm to yourself and to the people around you and it makes the world, the world uh, a worse place. Um, but it could be that, uh, that that process, that way of looking at it is actually... Is, it actually applies to all aims. And I think that Carpenter might actually, might actually agree. Um, because like Peterson says, this also, th th this structure also directs your own perceptions. Because um, one of the things that Carpenter says is that at this basic level of the mind, um, in terms of unconscious intentions, the, like what's going on there is that the, in the unconscious intention is to bring the most important thing to mind. To, to exclude all the things that are, that are irrelevant and to bring that, um, you know, that information to awareness on some, on some level, whether it's negative awareness in the terms of don't look at that or positive, like bring this to consciousness so that you're aware of it. 
that all of those things, um, that the purpose is to bring the best um, most important, most relevant things to consciousness. So naturally, if, if these things are going to contribute to behavior, that is going to be in line with an ethical, uh, it's going to be within an ethical framework. This is the information, the most important information to help you determine and make the best choice possible in this particular instant. Um, except that on this level, um, it's an open question whether that always goes right or not. Um, because you might have uh, what you know that he calls um, you know using master control theory of psychotherapy what what he calls a psychogenic or a pathogenic belief. So this is a, a, a wrong belief about the way the world is. So this will distort your ethical aims. This will distort your hierarchy of aims and values, so that you are now pursuing something you perceive to be um, on some level you perceive it to be important and going in the right direction. But you're actually making a poor choice based on essentially a poor um, a poor assumption that is creating a poor intention, and so this process is going on uh, unconsciously at the most basic level, but it's also directing our perceptions. So that what does that mean? Well, you just you just follow it up um, up the like the stream of conscious the stream of consciousness the stream of mind from unconscious to consciousness that um, all of these streams of information are basically being channeled or directed <clears throat> or um, you know, constrained and limited in some way by the body, by our, by our brains. It's like, so you imagine this, this vast field of potential meanings, potentially meaningful things. The mind kind of selects the things that seem most relevant in, the inst in that instant um, with you know, future, like let's say even short-term to long-term in plan two or in mind two, and then those initial meanings, potential meanings, get presented um, to basically your physiology, your 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 nervous system, your body. And the the so those what what happens is that your body then your your nervous system will form um, habits. It'll form patterns of behavior and um, you know reception and 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 the the way in which we think about things and um, and then use that information to, you know, collapse into an action, to, into, into doing one thing. Basically, it's the, the formation of a habit. So these can be habits of thought, habits of feeling, habits of action, any, any of those. So, um, so on, a neuro, on a neurophysiological level, the, the brain, like the, the, the subconscious sensations, subconscious, yeah, unconscious sensations that we feel, like that we feel on an unconscious level that prime us for behavior, so this would be things like subliminals, that there are there are pathways that are going on that are that um, that are habitual. So you see a certain type of image, and that will like habitually affect you in a in a certain way to prime you for for a certain um, action or behavior or response, um, ultimately in service of an action or behavior. And what, so what the what what it seems to me is that the the nervous system is like a, it's this this big like complex habit making machine. It, for the, for the service of helping you, basically, it's like okay, here's the way to channel to to transmit all this information in a way that is efficient and that gets these basic jobs done. Um, ideally, so that you can so that you can manifest whatever uh, your intentions are in this moment to you know to survive, to have healthy relationships, to be successful in what other, in whatever way, to develop in whatever way, and uh, to basically um, fulfill whatever your intentions are. On a, on a basic level. 
So neuro, neurophysiologically, it's like you are being prepared in these habitual ways to experience the world in a, in a particular way or in particular ways. So this can be in our response to, um, you know, material or information that is potentially threatening or, you know, things that are potentially um, beneficial. Like, uh, so uh, predators, um, food, you know, things that we associate with either end of that experiential framework of, you know, good or bad, um, you know, pleasant or not pleasant, um, pleasant but beneficial, pleasant but not beneficial, potentially dangerous, you know, unpleasant but, uh, but beneficial, you know, so you, want, you might want to go for that bit of unpleasantness for, because of this intention, or um, unpleasant and for a good reason, you want to avoid that. All of those value judgments are in terms of those, uh, those values, those pre-existing, -exi pre pre-conscious um, intentions, pre-conscious aims, pre-conscious uh, meanings, um, it is, these things are essentially mental uh, constructions, mental processes. It's like, that's why at the beginning of the show I was talking about how you can't reduce these things. You can't reduce an intention to anything other than an intention. Um, we just, maybe we, maybe there's a better way of putting it. We don't have really the words to, to put it, but it, it, if there's a better way to put it, it won't be in a way that removes the intentionality from, you know, intentions. That's just kind of the bottom level analysis when we're dealing with these sorts of things. So, um, so what, what I think Peterson is saying right there, and he said it again in other places, is that you know, even at the level of perception, when we're looking at the world, there is a selection process going on that is based on a hierarchy of values. The actual things that you see are graded for importance. You're seeing certain things because they are important to you in some way, because they are meaningful in some way, because they can be used um, for certain purposes, because um, they have some kind of relevance to you. You don't see things that, are, that aren't relevant to you. Um, like uh, I used this example, I think last year sometime, you know, when I'm looking at a tree, I, I don't see every leaf. I see a bunch of leaves because each leaf isn't important to me or relevant to me individually. If it were for some reason, like if one of those leaves had something on it that, or something like taped to it that was important, I would then inspect those leaves and each one would be important as I'm looking for this one important leaf. But for the most part, I don't see it. And so you see things in terms of like their, their functionality or their, their purposefulness or their relevance to you. And um, he makes this point, um, you know, in terms of, he brings this up pretty often in terms of like the you know, one of the early failures for AI and for like, um, you know, um, artificial like vision, for instance, like trying to train a computer to see something. And that the, the problem that the people working on this came in, came to was that when you're presented with a visual field of something, of all this information, there's no obvious way to distinguish one object from another. It's just, it, it's essentially as if you were looking at just a whole bunch of random points of light of different colors. It's like the, there's, a, there's a process that's going on that is still kind of mysterious for how exactly we, we see each object as its own separate object with its own separate function. And it, I think what Peterson argues is that it is because of that function. You see a chair because it is a chair for sitting on. Um, without a function, you wouldn't see it as a chair. Um, something might just be, you know, you just see a random collection of shapes with no purpose with no function you can't understand what it is for there is no 
um, there is no known meaning that is attached to that random bit of random collection of shapes and objects. It is only when it acquires some kind of relevance or importance, um, and then that gets instantiated through like repeated experience and forms memory, that things become um, relevant, and then you can then you perceive the world. So every time you're just looking at something with your vision, you are you are seeing like that. That is an example of this process going on at all times. This um, this creation of meaning, the, out, well, the, the construction of consciousness out of meaning. You are seeing each object because because of its place in memory and its importance to you um, over over time and in memory. You are seeing you are having the conscious confirmation of your unconscious um, intentions and and meanings um, that are then like displayed for you in the world. And now you have a, an ordered world that makes sense, that is meaningful, in which you can act and in which you can make choices and do things. And uh, w- without, without that level of intention, you would just be in this mass of confusing information. Yeah, I, I think that that's one reason why the study of history is so, is so beneficial. Because when you look back on a, a, just a whole number of different lives, you look at the, the choices that people, that different individuals make, and the kind of ethical you know, backbone, I guess you could say, that you can see, that you can discern either through their, their words or through just their actions. And you can see how this ethical backbone, it, it doesn't just, it's not that it, it just determines what you see, but, um, or how you see the world, although that's the, a big part as you've been describing, but it also determines the life that you live exactly. and the reality that you, that you live in. And, you know, that is because for, for most, I mean, for everybody, we all have this this unconscious uh, mind, and you know that's just kind of a catch-all term for, you know, who knows how many different subsystems, subroutines uh, that do, that are that each have kind of their own their own purpose, but their own intentions. You know, like the hypothalamus, it's like you know, if I'm thirsty, I want to get water, or you know, I, it's time to it's time to have a baby. You know, it's got you know, it has all these different you know functions, different intentions, but they're mediated hopefully by all these other different systems. And you know, so if you know, part of you wants to become successful, so you're going to school and you've learned all of these different things over the course of your life. Uh, that are operating at an unconscious level, so you know that in order, you know, to be successful at school, you have to do this. You have to write things, so you know you know how to write. You've learned that, and so you have to implement that that subroutine. And then you have to show up on time. You have to, you know, be respectful. You have to put in your effort, and so all of these different things uh, happen unconsciously. And you know, if you are just um, operating without a, a real uh, ethical backbone, let's say that it's like a, at a high level, mm-hmm. then, you know, you, you could be at the mercy of the, all these different systems. Oh, I want to, okay. So today I want to go to school. So now, you know, part of you wants to be successful. So you're going to school, but then the next day you're like, I don't really want to, I'd rather, you know, just sit and drink beer at home, mm-hmm. you know? And then the next day you're like, ah, oh, it's time to go find a, a lady and I need to find a lady. And then the next day it's, you know, back at home. And then, you know, like, I don't feel like going to work today. You know, if it just, the this, this mess of confusing, like you said, this chaos is what our unconscious 
really has the potential to be in unless we strive for an ethical, individualized, you know, perspective on reality. And that determines the world that we will live in, the life that we will live. And for most people, that is the meaning of life. It doesn't, you know, the, uh, this, you know, for most people just have an intuitive sense that life, this isn't the end, mm-hmm. you know, this, there, this is, there's more to life than this. And to aim towards the highest is not a, some just scurrilous thing to do. It's a fundamental, important thing, whether it's in terms of, you know, just bearing the responsibilities you have towards others. Um, you know, the highest that you can see at any given time, aiming towards that, developing these, you know, this unconscious in a way that you develop the skills that you can that you can manage the level that you're at so that you can reach for the next level and the next level. And, you know, obviously, you know, we talked about the, the scariness of anomalous psi experiences. Well, there's also horrifying, just normal unconscious, yeah. just, to, just, you know, facing the unconscious can be a, a horrifying thing because of how complex and how independent so oftentimes it, it seems to, it's, it has a mind of its own. Mm-hmm. You know, when we, when we live our lives, like you said, we can go, you know, day by day and like, you know, like, well, I did a lot of stupid things today, or I did a lot yeah. of stupid things, you know, the other day. Um, yeah. Without this, uh, this, or having this ethical, the de- ethical, uh, perspective that we choose will determine not just uh, what we see, but you know why we see it. Yeah, yeah, that very, a very important thing. You know, I, it, it'll determine the choices that we make. Do we go? Do we? You know, are, are are we prone to just travel? Are we prone to abandon people? Are we prone to uh, study? Are we point? Are we prone to learn? And then, how does that? How do those choices impact? the years that we that we have on this on this planet you know how how do they impact the the lives of the people around us um you know you you can you can spend so much time studying a, a problem and then you know if it's you know 10 years down the road even if it seemed like you were just slogging through but now you have an understanding an awareness of this problem and an awareness of the world that you didn't have 10 years prior how much richer are you than if you had just been, um, if you didn't have that sort of ethical drive, that if you had wasted, squandered your time on just various other, just kind of not, I mean, not meaningless, you know, I can't, I, I don't want to say that the unconscious is meaningless because it, it is, like you said, it's, it's to help us, but the, it's the, at the same time, it's, um, we're not just helpless passengers in this, right. in this machine. It's, it's our job to, to use it, you utilize it as best we can. But we, uh, but we can be um, helpless passengers. We can be. Like for sure. uh, so, so for I, I'm glad you brought up this distinction. So, like on the one level, there is the the hierarchy of intentions and aims and values that goes into the construction of just your perception. Um, but on the other, there is of course this level of like developing your own character and actual like ethical decision making. Um, you know, in the context of your life and with the people that that are around you, and um, so. He goes on like um, in in that short clip that we played. He he said that much of the way that the world manifests itself to you is a consequence of the structure of your ethics. So here he's talking about not just on that basic um, perceptual level, although it does apply to the perceptual level, um, but also you know just the way the the world manifests to you. This will be your relationships, you know, your work, everything about your life. Um, the way that that manifests to you will be a result of your um, the ethical structure that can be operating 
for the most part, unconsciously. Because then he goes on to say that if your world looks to you like a dismal and terrible place, <clears throat> and you're nihilistic and depressed and hopeless and all of that, it's certainly possible that it is because your ethical structure is not well formulated. It's incoherent. It's nihilistic. So um, here we get into something um, because there will always be an inherent or even implicit ethical structure to your behavior. Like if so, if you do no conscious work on it, you don't think about it at all. You will be you will be um, pushed in a certain ethical direction, um, but it will be based on these unconscious on the unconscious intentions and aims. You will be basically like a passenger, um, uh, a passenger going along for the ride that is being um, given to you by your unconscious, and things can go wrong, like I mentioned earlier in the unconscious. You can form pathogenic beliefs and beliefs that aren't in line with the nature and the structure of reality. So in this case, like um, he's talking about, um, okay, so your ethical structure is not well formulated. You're not looking at the world in the right way. There are certain things that, like certain true things about the world, like true propositions, true premises, true values, true um, aims and intentions, and just beliefs about the nature of reality that that you are not um, aware of, that your unconscious doesn't seem to be... Um, well, there's, a, there's a, mitch, a mismatch between reality and your intentions, and it might be your unconscious intentions and or your conscious intentions. You might have a conscious belief that the world is meaningless, um, but why? Um, and what is your unconscious saying? Like, your unconscious is constantly striving for meaning. It's constantly, like, disproving your um, your conscious belief about it. But uh, from the unconscious level, it might be constantly put, pushing you in directions that confirm that false belief. Because if you have a really deeply held belief, for instance, that the world is terrible, um, there there is a conflict, um, an unconscious conflict. On the one hand, you know, you're, well, it might even be that your your unconscious belief that the world is a terrible and meaningless place, it's constantly putting you in situations to either confirm or disconfirm that belief. But because we're habitual creatures, it's like we we habitually will will come to um, put ourselves in situations that uh, will make us um, that will confirm our beliefs to ourselves, and that will be comfortable in some way. You might have a fear of having that belief disproven to you. Um, but if we go along with uh, like what he, um, well, I won't get into that yet. I'm going to talk about master control theory just a little bit. But so we've got this, um, these unconscious and conscious beliefs that are at odds with reality. So um, part of the, the process of fixing that, I think, is to just, first of all, try to get an, under an understanding of reality. Well, is reality really meaningless? Well, even if I try to accept that, there is, there is still seem, my, my, behaviors still be, steam, my behaviors still seem to be directed towards the pursuit of some kind of meaning. Um, I don't think anyone can argue with that or escape that. Now, what the precise nature of those meanings are and what the precise like beliefs and intentions are, that's a, a more complicated process, um, which might require psychotherapy in some instances for, of like you know extremely pathogenic beliefs because that's where we get into master control theory. It's like there are pathogenic beliefs that people can form, especially in childhood, about the nature of, of the world, about the nature of other people. And uh, our interactions with other people, um, we may believe on a deep level that you know that no one loves us, that we have no purpose in the world, or that our purpose is to constantly be um, 
um, you know, putting ourselves second to someone else to, 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 to not be looking out for, um, you know, our own well-being, um, or that we, you know, that, that we're worthless, that people, that the people that love you always will leave you. So you, you shouldn't get close to anyone. But the point that of, uh, master control theory, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago is that, um, for the people that have some inkling that something's wrong and that actually look for help, like that, first of all, that's a sign that some part of themselves realizes there's something wrong. So Carpenter, who likes master con- master control theory, would argue that when people go into psychotherapy, it's because on some level, like on an unconscious level, part of themselves wants these wrong beliefs to be disproven. They want to go in and they want evidence that no, um, that, that it, it is possible to be loved, you know, that that not everyone that you get close to will leave you, that it is good to get close to some people, that that is necessary, um, you know, etc. That these pathogenic beliefs are, um, even on that unconscious level, they're in conflict because there's the pathogenic belief, but then there's the, I'd say probably the deeper belief that has an understanding of reality that, that, uh, that, that, I guess you might even say it has an understanding that that belief is pathogenic and is looking for the information, looking for the confirmation, um, you know, through the sensory information that we get from our interactions with other people, in this case with a psychotherapist, we're looking for that confirmation that will disprove that belief to then um, allow a more healthy set of unconscious beliefs and intentions, a a healthier unconscious and conscious hierarchy of values and aims. And that's essentially what the psychotherapeutic process is. It's it, and it's also the process of what Dabrowski would call auto psychotherapy when you're doing this process for yourself. So this would be this would now apply to anyone who like listens to Jordan Peterson for their own self development, who isn't necessarily in psychotherapy, but listens to to him and 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 it's like and you know recognizes something important in what he's saying, and then does some work to put the to try to get those conscious and unconscious levels into alignment because if you're li- if you're living a life where um, where you realize that you could be doing a lot better there are tons of things that you're doing wrong that, that, that you have more potential than you have manifested um, that there are certain practices that you could probably put into practice that will make your life better certain things you could be doing better um, certain relationships that you can fix if you're seeing all these things what you're what you're doing is you are really like working and mining your your unconscious the way your your unconscious is playing itself out automatically for whatever reason it's it, well it's basically it's the habits that you've formed over time for whatever reason and you're retraining yourself which is very hard at first you know because the the habits are so strong so you you start something new and you you make a very small well a very large effort for a very small goal which might be like later on in this uh, um, Q and A, he's answering someone who basically says that they're having trouble like working on their CV, like for for getting a new job, and they you know they've been putting it off for months, and he basically says, well, the first step is to open the to turn on your computer, right? And that's it. You know, you turn on your computer, and then you can pat yourself on the back, and then you make a plan for the next time. You open the folder that has your CV in it. You don't even open your CV. You just open the folder. Like even these tiny tasks are can be difficult depending on your circumstances, and for this person, you know, obviously it, it was and is a problem. So um, by and that's essentially 
to by doing this, you are essentially forming a new habit and you are confirming to yourself like new beliefs. Like you're confirming to yourself that, okay, I can do this. You know, this isn't too big of a, uh, too big of a, uh, a hurdle for me to cross. And then, okay, you've just sent your unconscious the signal. Oh, you know, that isn't a huge problem. You know, that isn't something that I'm incapable of. Oh, well, do you look at that? That has just confirmed now this potential meaning, this, poten this, potentially, uh, this potential meaning that I am a capable individual who is, who is able to overcome, um, you know, a, a certain degree of difficulty in, in the, you know, in whatever my pursuits are in life. And so by constantly doing that, you, what you're actually doing is you are disconfirming um, like limited beliefs that hold you back in whatever way, and you're confirming what were previously only those potential meanings about yourself and about the world. And so it's this, again, it's this selection process that's going on through, now through your own conscious intervention in the process. You're like, you're intervening in these conscious processes and being like, okay, well, I'm going to engage in this process I'm going to do this thing, and what's actually happening by doing that is that you are restructuring the 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 hierarchy, the, the the unconscious hierarchy of what is motivating all of your actions, and even um, you know from the level of your perception all the way up to the the character that you build for yourself through your through the decisions you make in uh, in work and and relationships, and. Um, yeah, so I hadn't really thought about it like that before, but what you're essentially doing is, um, well, in, in, any, in any of these moments, you are surrounded by potential meanings. Um, and some of those potential meanings are going to be better and more helpful to you than other potential meanings. Um, and your unconscious is constantly going to be looking for the, most poten the, most, um, the best, the most important ones. But for whatever reason, like let's say that on an unconscious level then, you, you, there is the belief... Um, or the the potential meaning that you are a um, uh, a person who is capable of doing these things, of making these choices. Now, for whatever reason, over like your um, over your life and over the formation of your conscious experience and the, the you know the interaction, the the way that interacts with your with your unconscious, you will then form a habit that, for whatever again for whatever reason, blocks that from consciousness. It's like well, that even though that's the best meaning, it isn't relevant in this situation. Um, it won't be brought to consciousness. It won't be believed because there are all these other things that are that are more important in this instant for whatever reason. It may be it may be like for for a child, it may be more important to to not see to not believe a certain true thing because in that situation, um, for just the survival of the child, it's important to to come up with a um, like a, an illusion, a false belief. And this would be like the belief of the child who's who's con like we talked we give the example a couple of weeks ago of the the child who's constantly passed around um because they don't have any parents and it seems to the child like like no one loves them well you know on some level that belief was helpful at that time because it protected them from um um from just even more devastation in, in adulthood the like some beliefs that we form in childhood aren't good anymore so for whatever reason on an unconscious level then we we might ignore the or we might um how does he put it we might sign negatively those potential meanings that are good but then as adults who can then intervene in this process with our own like free will and our own, through our own choices we then uh, provide the material in our in our sensory environment and in the world of action and meaning 
we we by 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 doing certain things we then provide the material to access and confirm that that new that that previously potential meaning and to bring it into actuality and to manifest that and that i think is actually how we um, manifest our potential because that's another thing that peterson talks about right is that everyone has a potential and um, we're ideally we are all like striving to um, to actualize that potential but you look at you know you look at yourself you look at other people you see oh you know he's really not you know manifesting his full potential well neither am i i'm not manifesting my full potential well how do i go about doing that well it's finding those uh, it's finding those potential meanings and then confirming them through the active process of um it is a like a, a discipline and a um you know a process of work of 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 putting in the work and and making the the kind of difficult choices and putting in putting in the hours essentially to retrain um those unconscious parts of yourself to 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 disconfirm those old beliefs and to confirm the new ones yeah something like that fantastic that was fa- that was a great overview i uh so basically what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying here no i'm not saying that <laughs> so the um so the big takeaway one of the biggest beliefs i you know, i pick up on when you're saying that is that it's better the one of the most important beliefs really is this is the belief that you are personally responsible for the reality that you're living in and so if you if through just whatever cruel events from the past come to adopt these beliefs nihilistic beliefs of self-hatred self-sabotage that the world is meaningless and it's causing you such grief and you 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 obviously don't want to have this belief that life there's no meaning no beauty then it's upon us as individuals that we can take responsibility we can create that beauty we can create that meaning even if it is a herculean effort at mm-hmm. first to do it then that that is our responsibility and in fact the worse it is you know the the most ethical person will probably see it as their duty you know that ethical call is that you know it is your duty to to god to the universe it's your duty to the highest power to manifest because there is no beauty around you there is no meaning life is you know dark and bleak and then you just set out you know it's your pilgrimage towards the you know towards your highest potential and that's where the adventure of life mm-hmm. begins and then you're just like odysseus on the waves after that yeah. but but that is the that's one of the most fundamental beliefs is that it's your duty to be if you want to be then it's your duty to be and that's and whatever it takes to become then you do that and that's you know you 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 love yourself along the way you you know you you have to accept the you know failings of the human condition but like you said you know if the world is it looks to you as if it's nihilistic and meaningless then maybe that's because that's what you're creating and in, in many ways you're creating this because you have the ability i mean that's everyone does we, you know even if you, any small act of creativity any small you know act of the, of of beauty that you can create in this world it's it everyone has that potential and we all love those people who do that you know that's those people are the ones that uh that we w- that we wish to emulate the most that we we hold on the highest standard are those who in the darkest times they that is their existential commitment to 
to this possibility to this i guess you could maybe it's like one of one of the poles of the the universe you know of being and beauty and you know of this you know this ethical viewpoint whereas the other pole is nihilism and mm -hmm. materialism and all of these other all this all the associated behaviors and resentment and anger that go along with it and we all have that choice that we can implement the behaviors of one or the other and you know once at some point in our lives we realize if we're if we're nihilistic if our you know if we're con just contracting and constantly you know blaming and resentful and full of hate you know that's to have somebody like jordan peterson come in and say hey buck up hey yeah. bucko get, clean your room that's uh -huh. all you can clean your room can't you yeah. that go ahead and give it a shot yeah. and then you know to see that there are so many people who respond to so just like it, that's all it took Mm -hmm. for so many people was just the idea that i can you know that it is yeah. possible to to manifest order and that it, i don't have to blame everybody be, you know if there's no order in my life i can clean my room mm -hmm. it's fascinating well uh the last thing he said in that clip um has to do with some of these kind of uh positive core beliefs so the opposite of of the pathogenic beliefs and well, I just say first of all that if if you're living in a nihilistic world and and that's the the world that you're seeing, that's because you are essentially manifesting the meaning of anti-meaning, right? Like even that nihilism is the expression of a certain type of meaning. It's just uh, it's just the 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 absence of real meaning, but it, that in itself is still a meaning. It's just a, a, a like a, a perverse one. It's a it's one that is not. Um, not in alignment with the actual nature of reality. But, um, so Peterson goes on and says something like, uh, it's, it's not, uh, so that, 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 um, like pathological, um, structure of, of ethical aims that, that you have, if you're like nihilistic like that, he says it isn't predicated on the idea, for example, that some people have, uh, that people have some spark of divine virtue and that everyone is valuable in that right and that we all have the possibility to make a genuine contribution to the world, or at least stop it from degenerating any more than it has to into a kind of hell. So there's, uh, there's something you know, deep in there that I think, uh, like this idea that, um, that every person is like a spark of the divine, um, it is necessary in order to be, like, it is not only... Um, uh, a result of living in the world like help in a in a healthy way in a positive way but it's also like a precondition for that and if it's a precondition for for um like transacting in the world in a way that is in accordance with reality in a way that works then it must be true in some way so in what way is it true and maybe to um maybe before we end today's show I'll just go into I'll take that into one other direction um, to kind of tie it into some previous shows that we've had. So if that is true, how can it be true? And um, be because some people like will, even Peterson at points, um, but uh, but people who aren't really, um, well, some people will take something like that and say, okay, well, it, it it'll, they'll take the pragmatic approach to truth, which Peterson does often. Well, if it seems to work, that's good enough. We can't really say if it's actually true or not. So is it really true that we are all like sparks of the divine, um, that everyone has some some real value to them, or does it just is it just the best is it just best to kind of assume that because it happens to work? You find the same thing in like uh, 
approaches to to religion from guys like uh, Jonathan Haidt and uh, and uh, you know Nassim Taleb, where it's like, well, it seems to work, so we should uh, like religious beliefs seem to have these positive things, so so we should accept that they work for whatever reason. But you know whether they're true or not, or how they're true, or whatever level they're true on, you know that's another question. We don't have to get into that. We don't have to accept that they're true, um, but just accept that they work. Well, um, this gets into kind of these uh, deeper kind of metaphysical um, speculations and potentially realities. Like if we are, for instance, um, if our aims are predicated on some kind of values. Well then, what is the source of values? You know, how do val values actually exist? So this is what we talked about last year when we were um, talking about Whitehead and and David Ray Griffin, is that if we're going to operate on the idea that these things are true, well then it might be helpful to come up with a a worldview like a philosophy in which they actually are true. And the way to do that is. Um, you know, well, to 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 read some Whitehead, which is kind of difficult again. But why do all the authors that we like have to be, you know, such a dense writers? I don't know. But <laughs> at least uh, I don't think David or Ray Griffin is that dense. Um, but um, basically, value value has to be true. There has to be a way in which values are true. They have to be a, like objectively real in some way, not objects in the sense of you know physical objects. They have to be real. They have to be effective, like they have to be able to influence us in some way, which they arguably, you know, and and experientially do. We are influenced by values. Values do seem to exist. Well, where do they exist? Well, they are, like values can't be described in terms of physics. Um, it can't be reduced to physics at the very least. So where are they? Well, they're non-physical in nature. So this is uh, kind of why I, I liked that little book that we read, uh, Consciousness, Anatomy of the Soul, because the, you know, it starts out just with a simple point. It's like, well, you know, your perception of something isn't physical. So therefore, it doesn't exist in the physical world. It exists in the non-physical world. So then that's the question, well, where, what's the non-physical world? Well, the only non-physical world that we have any real like, access to right now um, is our mind, because our minds are non-physical. Um, can't be reduced to physics. So just, you know, just own it, you know, say it, okay, I've got a non-physical mind. And I may not be able to understand all the implications of that or, you know, what it all means, but uh, just take that as your starting point. And then you can say, okay, so values, abstractions, things that, things that aren't material, um, and this would include, um, so values, numbers, um, like norms like, uh, like in logic or in, in uh, aesthetics like beauty, um, even the the norm of truth, you know, what is truth? Well, oh, quoting Pilate, um, you know, what, what is truth? Um, well, it's a non-physical thing, right? You can't reduce the idea of truth to an atom. It's like, oh, truth is that collection of atoms, not that collection of atoms. Well, it doesn't make any sense. It's like truth is a, a non-physical, mental, rational um, norm. It is a... a, a um, a, a, a yardstick of some sort that can't be reduced to matter. Um, so maybe all of whatever all these things are, you know, they exist in the same place. And traditionally, like classically, that was ascribed to the mind of God. That's where they were placed. Is that the you know the source of mathematics, the source of order, the source of value, the source of consciousness itself, the source of all these non-physical things is in the non-physical mind, um, like the, the the ultimate mind. 
Um, and I guess that's a that's a direction we'll be coming back to in the future too, in future episodes of Mind Matters. Uh, get into the philosophy of that a bit. But uh, yeah, I think I'll end that there. Do you have anything to say? Well, yeah, I just wanted to play devil's advocate really quick sure. and just say that, you know, a, a staunch materialist would say, well, we just evolved values and that's why it's, you know, it's all about pragmatism is because just over the course of millennia, it's just whatever worked because of, you know, of natural selection and whatever accidents occurred. Yeah. But, you know, that runs up against the problem that you probably you need value to have life in the first place well, in order need- for to have natural selection to have these creatures doing the things they do there is some value involved in what they're doing and you know then they would say well you know the original values was it was just you know to survive and then you run into the problem that well you know life itself is a horrible thing to have if your only value is survival because, you know, without life, you, you don't have the problem. Life just creates the problem in the first mm-hmm. place. So, you know, when you just keep pushing this problem back and back, and it, and it's still you run up into this philosophical problem, and one that you can't explain uh, just by, just through the materialist mindset, which when you look at things through, you know, a lens for values, you see that materialism is itself just a value, it's just a value judgment about the universe. And, you know, so what you're getting at here, Harrison, about, you know, values being non-physical, you know, it touches on what we've been reading and, you know, consciousness, anatomy of the soul, you know, Dr. You know, Carpenter's book, empirical science, you know, actual science that shows that there is a, you know, that you can, you can test these things and you can speculate on, on the nature of the mind in ways that are, you know, perfectly scientific and you can draw conclusions from them. And then, you know, you've talked about David Ray Griffin and Alfred North, uh, wait, wait, Alfred North Whitehead. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, and you can, there's, you know, philosophy behind it too. There's this, there's all of this potential for a total, a grand, a real rethink and a mature, not just, a, you know, not a, some new agey rethink on the nature and science of the mind, but a rethink on science of the mind that is perfectly in line with what we already know to be true about the universe. You don't have to ditch uh, any theories that aren't already scientifically valid with, you know, you, I mean, obviously we're probably going to have to ditch those theories that are based in the value judgments concerning, you know, what is and isn't possible. It's saying that, you know, every, everything that, you know, consciousness can't exist because of this, but that's just not scientific. You're ignoring scientific evidence, as it's been pointed out time and time again. But you know that's not what we're going to do here on Mind Matters because we obviously have the value of truth, and so we're going to be pursuing that. Yeah, maybe one final comment on what you said in there about uh, the like the response from a materialist or a Darwinist that well the only reason values don't really exist where they just evolved we just evolved to experience what we experience as, as values, but. You need consciousness in order to have an experience of value. And Darwinism can't explain the emergence of experience of value. Mm-hmm. Like th- that in itself is, is unexplainable in terms of, you know, physical mindless evolution. So, the, you know, they're explaining a, uh, an unknown in terms of an un- another unknown and saying both of those came about through, um, you know, a, a random physical process. But neither of those accounts for either, or that doesn't that can't account for either of those things that they're trying to explain that depend on each other. Like you can't have consciousness without a sense of value, and you can't have values without a sense of consciousness in order to experience the values. 
and so the the question really is is what are, you know what is the limit or what are the limits of um, of Darwinian evolution and like we like we've pointed out in in the shows we've done on evolution it's like well by definition that the Darwin's theory of evolution can only affect physical processes and it doesn't even do a very good job at that like there are, there are mysteries to or not mysteries but there are limits to what can be achieved by purely Darwinian processes so it's like why why even um, why even bother going there and trying to explain you know something like consciousness in terms of like a material a material process that hasn't even been you know been proven to be able and 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 hasn't been um, developed to a degree to show how one complex protein can evolve into another complex protein it's like it it's just a it's a non-starter kind of yeah at this point to to deny or just to say that every you know everything is materialistic or you know rel relative nihilistic and that humans have no consciousness you know, to to say that is just to be uh, you know you you're standing on very more morally dubious grounds to say yeah. the very least at this point you're starting to look like some sort of a a, a, a i don't know some sort of a predator because <laughs> if you're really if you're really going to yeah. use your platform as a scientist to make these kinds of statements that that uh, no that society will accept on some part you know unconsciously as we've been talking throughout this whole episode we're you know we're primed by our culture we're primed by society mm -hmm. and these and you know if as scientists if they are uh, on their soapbox and given this platform and they're and they're spreading a sort a uh, uh, something that just just corrodes human the worth of human life of life in general then you have to say you know at some point that you know you're it's just morally dubious right and on that dubious. note on that note we will end the show we'll end the show on a dubious note dubious <laughs> so uh thanks for tuning in everyone uh Hope you like the new format, and we'll be back next week with another video. So everyone take care. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.